0: Today we're going to be talking about uh, another in the issues line of talks that I've set up over the next few weeks about matters of life and death. And we're looking at difficult questions or questions that people want answers to. And we started a couple of weeks ago with the question of what happens when you die. And we, if you weren't here for that a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the fact that when you die, the moment you die, your eternal destiny is already determined. And either that is heaven or that is hell. And so we talked about what that looks like, what both of those places are like, what it takes to be there. If You can go back and listen to that online. Today, we want to ask another question, and to be honest with you, a question that is much less written about or discussed, and partially because the answers to it are either difficult to comprehend or challenging. I don't know if you know this or not, but in general, as humans, we don't like to be challenged a whole lot. We like things to be easy. We like things to be set up for us. Some of the answers that we're going to seek today are difficult, not just in understanding. And to be honest with you, we're going to talk about some things today that I don't have a good explanation for. And here's what I will tell you about that. If me, as a finite human being, were able to understand absolutely everything about God and His eternity, He would not be the omnipotent God that I know. But we're going to look in Scripture and see if we can find the answers that we're looking for. And this is the question we're going to ask today, which is, will Christians face judgment? Will Christians face judgment? And if so, what does that look like? What what are we being judged on? What, What is going to account? What are the results of that judgment? 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul, by the way, is defending his ministry in 2 Corinthians. We know from the writings of Paul that this is not the second letter he sent to Corinth. This is at least the fourth letter he sent to f- Corinth. There was a letter before 1 Corinthians. There was a letter in between First and Second Corinthians that have been lost to history. And so we know that this is at least the fourth time he's writing to Corinth. And the reason he's writing to Corinth is because the cr- church at Corinth is messed up. Like, badly. In years past, we've talked about this, we've talked about this This group of people, that, that they were people that were arguing all the time about insignificant things. There were people where there were divides between the Jews and the Gentiles, between racial and religious lines in those times. There were times that there were uh, divisions between the rich and the poor, between the old and the young. There were gaps in generation, gaps in socioeconomic things, gaps in belief systems. There were all of these gaps trying to come together as a church and it wasn't working. There was rampant sexual immorality in the church where people were flaunting things that should have never been flaunted out in the open. Where Paul had to say to them as a church in 1 Corinthians, you need to take that person that is flaunting it and kick them out of the church. When Lord's Supper time was there, they they weren't a Baptist church. I don't know if you all know that or not, but the church at Corinth wasn't 1st Baptist of Corinth. And we know that because they apparently had uh, leaded communion. Y'all know what leaded communion is? The, the alcohol in their communion. And we know that because Paul got on to them because the rich people would show up and eat everything and drink to the point that they were overserved, And the poor in their community had to work all day, would get there, and the Lord's supper table would be empty. And Paul is like, y'all got to knock it off. And the letter, by the way, between 1 Corinthians, this idea that Paul wrote them a letter, and they're like, "Woo, let's shape up, let's get it all together. That didn't happen, because the letter in between, he calls the bitter letter he had to send them. And then in 2 Corinthians, he's starting to soften a little bit. But part of the issue is they were questioning, do we even have to follow what Paul teaches? We don't think Paul's in it for the right reasons. We don't like Paul. We like Apollos better. We don't like what he preaches. We don't like he's too rough on us. He's too tough. He's not, he's not nice enough to us. So Paul's defending his ministry in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And he starts by saying, he's just told them, listen, we're just human beings. We're holding all of this important stuff in jars of clay. It can be broken any time. And he says in chapter 5 verse 1, for we know... That if our earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal dwelling in heavens, not made with hands. Indeed, we groan in this tent, desiring to put on our heavenly dwelling. Since we and we are clothed, we will not be found naked. Indeed, we groan while we're in this tent, burdened as we are, because we do not want to be unclothed but clothed, so that mortality may be swallowed up by life. All he's saying in there is, listen, listen, I... I wish this were over. I wish we could be with the Lord. I wish that we were done with this life. But he's also speaking to the reality of where we are in this moment. That we're living a life that is perishing and painful, but is passing. That this is part of who we are. We like to see this life as everything there is, and yet it is but a moment. A momentary time in which we are living through a life where we have a body that is breaking down, that is perishing. That is not as good today as it was yesterday for most of us. And that life is painful. Not, not, not just physically, although it is painful physically. Emotionally and spiritually, it is painful. My guess is there are some of you in this room right now that are walking through some difficult moments because of a medical diagnosis or a broken relationship or someone that has betrayed you or something that is happening in your career and you are in pain Paul says, I-, I wish this was all the way. But just know that this is just part of our life and that the majority of what we will live, the vast majority of what we will live, is after this is over. In verse 5, he says, Now, the one who prepared us for this very purpose is God who gave us the Spirit as a down payment. So we are always confident and know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. In fact, we are confident and we prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. By the way, some of you will know that verse, verse 8, as to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Verse 9. Therefore, whether we at home, whether home is heaven... Or away here, we make it our aim to please Him. Verse 10 For we must all appear for the judgment seat of Christ so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, I want to focus on verse 10 for just a moment because before we really think about it, I want to ask you this question. Is the book of 2 Corinthians written to unbelievers or believers? Believers. Now that's not to say that every single person in the church that was attending in Corinth were believers, although it was much harder to just attend church in that day as a non-believer than it is for us today. But these are believers, right? So Paul's writing to believers. Now let me let me ask you a question, all right? Was Paul a believer or a non believer? Believer. Yeah, that should have come out real quickly, right? If Paul's a non believer, we got issues, all right? So I want you to notice some words in this particular verse. For we, who's we? Paul and the church in Corinth. Believers or unbelievers? Believers. For we must, it's one of our favorite words, church, all in the original language means all. For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each or every single one of us may be repaid, recompensed rewarded for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, let me tell you something dangerous to do as a believer, okay? Something dangerous to do as a believer is to take one verse in a specific context and build an entire belief system off of it. So so I don't want to do that today. We could drill down into this and really figure this out, And if this was the only place in Scripture where it talked about this, then we would have to say, okay, what is Paul meaning there? What is it in the light of the context? What is he trying to teach? But it's not. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he writes this. He's talking there, by the way, again, defending his ministry because there was a guy named Apollos that apparently was a better speaker than Paul. I I don't know if this will surprise you or not, but from all the evidence we have in Scripture, Paul was not the most compelling, energetic, exciting speaker. In, In fact, some of you know this story. In the book of Acts, he spoke so long, he put someone to sleep, and that person they put to sleep was a young boy who fell off out of the window and died. Now, I've never killed someone preaching that I know of. He put him to sleep, I love this, he falls off like a second story window, dies, Paul revives him, and it says, kept on preaching till dawn. You talk about not being deterred, like, come on, let's go, right? I know he died, let's get back to the text, right? Right? So he was debating with them because they were like, "Well, I tell you what, I wish that, I just wish that Paulus was around all the time. I mean, Paul—he's not being mean, and he—he's kind of blunt, and he's kind of to the point, and we don't like it." And, and they were like, "Apollos is better." And he goes, "Paul says, listen, <laughs> whether you like Apollos or me, doesn't really matter. We're preaching the same gospel." And what we're doing is trying to build, and they request his motivation. I think just Paul wants our money. That's all he cares about. He says, if anyone builds on a foundation with gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become obvious. Everybody will know someday whether it's real or not. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test the quality of each one's work. He's talking about judgment here. If anyone's work that he has built survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will experience loss. But he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So in 2 Corinthians, he says, each one of us must stand before the judgment seat and they're going to judge our works good or evil. In 1 Corinthians, he says, there's going to be revealed your works and whether it is good or not will be revealed in the fire. And he has this interesting thing at the end because he says there that this is, again, people that are believers apparently because he's, some are going to come through and they're going to be saved, but everything they thought they were bringing in, all their works on the earth, all the important things of their life are burned up and they escape as through fire. Well, that's Paul. What about Jesus. Matthew chapter 16, verse 27, For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will reward each according to what He has done. What about at the end? Do we have anything in Revelation about it? We just happened to. Revelation 22. Jesus, again speaking, Look, I am coming soon. Can I get an amen? I'm ready. And my reward is with me to repay each person according to his work. So, so we don't want to build a, a theological system, a belief system on one verse, but there are multiple examples that give us the answer to this question, will Christians face judgment? Yes. Right? Maybe we all talk about what that is. First, let's talk about what that judgment is not. That judgment is not a judgment on whether or not you are saved. Your works have nothing to do with your own salvation. So when you get to heaven, he's not going to open up a book and see whether your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds and how that interacts with your faith in Jesus and then determine whether or not you're getting into heaven. This has nothing to do with whether you are saved or not. In fact, what this is not is what is described in Revelation chapter 20. In verse 11 when it says, Then I saw a great white throne and one seated on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence and no place was found from them. In other words, this is the, they call this the white throne judgment. And I also saw the dead, the great and the small, all people standing before the throne and books were opened. What were the books? They were the book of life. Another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works, but what was written in the books. So how does your name get in the book? Well, it's your faith in Jesus Christ. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it. And the death and Hades gave up their dead that were in them. And each one was judged according to their works. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. The judgment of Christians that we're talking about is not that judgment, the great white throne judgment, when the God of the universe will sit on the throne and will look at people who denied him throughout their life, who never accepted the free gift of salvation from Jesus Christ, and he will cast them in eternity apart from him. That's because that is the judgment for their sins, for their works, Your judgment for your sins and for your works according to whether or not we are saved if you're a believer in Jesus Christ happened on the cross of Jesus. It is finished. It is done. It is over. We don't ever have to worry about our place in heaven again. But knowing what the judgment is not, the question then becomes, what is this judgment then? And so to do that, I want to show you a symbol that I think gives us a picture into what's intended here. What's this the symbol of? It's the Olympic Games. Why would the Olympic Games have anything to do with this? Do you know where the Olympic Games began? Greece, how long ago? Long time ago. Not like 1896, like B.C., right, before Jesus. Here's the interesting thing about the Olympic Games. They were considered, even then, probably the most important, but there was one that was as close to them as it could be in importance, and it was played the year before and the year after the Olympic Games. So the Olympic Games would happen every four year an Olympiad. On the fourth year, like this, like it does for us, and like summer games every four year. now they've split the winter because of TV and they want people to watch. And so... But it used to be every four years. When I was growing up, you had winter and summer every four years, right? And so that was the way it was in the ancient Greeks. On the fourth year, they would play. But on the first year before that, or the year before that, on the fourth year, and on the second year the year after it, they would play something called the Isthmian Games. And the Isthmian Games happened in Corinth. And it was a fun, fun time. People come from all over. They had all kinds of events, chariot races. Wouldn't you love to watch a good chariot race? That'd be awesome. Like Ben-Hur happening right in front of your eyes, right? They had wrestling. Like, not wrestling. That's fake. Like wrestling, the real stuff. Boxing. They had a, a sport called pancration. Anybody ever done pancration around here? Pancration is basically MMA. UFC. It was hand to hand combat that used kicking and chokeholds and submissions. And right next to that they had competitive poetry and music. Hand to hand music. Right? And what would happen is they would compete and part of the competition would happen in front of judges. And the judges would actually have a seat, a picture of this seat that you can't really tell a whole lot about. But this is from Corinth. This is right where they played. And there was a judgment seat right here. And that judgment seat was called the Bema. And the Bema was the place that when they finished the competition, a judge would sit there and as they came before him, he would reward the athletes for their accomplishments in the competition. Now, they didn't have medals, but it's very similar to what we do with the medal ceremonies. I don't know if you know this, the Olympics are coming next year. Anybody here ever get emotional at those uh, like award ceremonies? They've told this terrible story of this overcoming adversity and they're standing up there and the person's weeping. Noah doesn't. He doesn't have a heart. He doesn't get emotional about that. But like, you know, USA, you know, the Star Spangled Banner's playing behind them, this overcoming story. But it's a time of celebration. They didn't have medals, but they had laurel wreaths they would put on them. And as they did, they would announce their accomplishments to the crowd. Here's what's interesting about what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, For we must all come to the bema, the judgment seat. What is this place? This is the place where we will be recognized by our Father for what we have done in His name. the book of Revelation, one of the things it talks about is that there will be a name that we will be given by the Lord that will only be known to us in Him. So what is this judgment seat that believers will encounter? First of all, it's a place of review. I, I don't believe that this is going to be a replay of your full life with God grading the film of your life. Because that would not be fun. Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord? I don't have to know what yours would look like. I know what mine would look like. And I would not want to display my life on these big screens for all to see with motivations included. Wouldn't that be fun? Like the subtitles just be the motivations behind what you're doing the whole time. I don't think that's what's here. I do think what's here, though, is there's going to be a review of the ways that you have served and the ways that you have helped and the ways that you have been used by God for the kingdom and his purposes. I think about the parable of the talents. You remember that, right? God gives out the talents and the God comes back and goes, God, this is what I did with what you gave me. And God says, then you will be rewarded. Now, the one at the end we'll talk about in just a moment, but that's kind of the idea behind it. It's going to be, what did you do with the grace that God, the mercy that God gave to you? How did you live your life based on the fact that God gave you freedom to live for Him based on the forgiveness of His Son, Jesus? Secondly, it's going to be a place of reward. I I think just as this picture for them, when he mentioned the Bema to them, they would have immediately thought of the Isthmian games, of being standing there, of the laurels being placed on, of the accolades being given, and I think there are going to be rewards. Now, some people have issues with whether there are going to be reward levels in heaven. Here's what I'm going to tell you. Nobody is going to be disappointed with what heaven is like. Nobody's going to get there and go, man, I... Just not what I thought it'd be. It's going to be amazing. But Scripture also makes it very clear that there are going to be rewards and accolades to be handed out in heaven. Now, I don't have a clue what that means. I don't know if that means you get a separate wing on your mansion. I don't think that's what it means. I don't mean, know if that means you get four wings to fly around instead of two. I don't think that's what it means. I don't even know we're going to be flying around. But in some way, your experience in heaven is going to be greater or lesser based upon how you stewarded what God gave you on this earth. And the judgment here we get from 1 Corinthians 3, which you can go back and read sometime. It talks about the wood, the hay, the straw. It talks about the gold, the silver. It's going to be quality over quantity. It's not the number of works you do. It's the quality you use to build it. It's not the size of the building you build. It's the quality that is there. It's motivation over achievement. It's not what you accomplished. It's your desire and what you were trying to accomplish. One of the things that I read this week that really kind of stuck out to me is... The only thing that's going to happen at this judgment is that everything will be made right. And so those times in your life when you've been slighted or when someone has falsely accused you and you knew you were right but it never worked out, all of that will be revealed and made right for you. Now the, the contrast to that is the times that you've been the offending party is going to be made right too. It's quality over quantity. It's motivation over achievement. It's what you attempted over what you achieved. And it is eternal over material. It is not what you did here with material stuff that is going to fade away, that's going to be burned up. It is what you did with the things that matter in life. That judgment seat is going to look over your life and see how you used what God gave you. Did you live with a critical spirit or a cheerful spirit? Were you a critical giver or a cheerful giver? Were you someone that shared your faith regardless of the outcome? Or were you someone that stood in the background? Were you someone that had a motivation to live for the Lord? Or were you just trying to check off some things to show other people something? It'll be a place of review. It'll be a place of reward. It'll be a place of reevaluation. In the book of Luke, a couple of weeks ago we talked about this great reversal that will happen where the first will be last, the top will be the bottom. Well, there'll be a great shuffling, and things that we thought and people that we thought were important will not be. I heard this story this story this week. Read it again. I've heard it before, I think I've shared it before. About somebody that's going to have prominence in heaven. From all that we can tell, and we're not the final judge, but from all we can tell, is a guy named Mr. Kimball that was a shoe salesman. You don't know Mr. Kimball. Couldn't find a picture of Mr. Kimball. But Mr. Kimball one day, while he was working as a shoe salesman, shared his faith with a young man who decided that he needed to tell other people about Jesus, and he became an evangelist. And that evangelist preached at a conference in London where one of the most stiff, uptight professors was attending and it changed his life. And that professor would eventually come to America where he would preach a revival where a young man would be saved That young man would begin to teach and preach the gospel as well and actually began to do crusades around and began to do revivals in places around the country and he needed an apprentice one day and he found a young baseball player who also could speak a little bit and he started to give him the sermons and the baseball player began to speak. He would slide on stage talking about coming home to Jesus and then that particular baseball player was part of a revival that happened in Charlotte, North Carolina and the people there were so moved by it they declared that God had to send someone else and God did send someone else a guy named Mordecai came and as he came and he preached this evangelist preached his heart out there was a tall lanky young man that walked down the aisle named Billy Graham and gave his life to Jesus all because a shoe salesman shared the gospel with D.L. Moody who shared the gospel with F.B. Meyer to share the gospel with Wilbur Chapman, who incorporated a guy named Billy Sunday, who led a revival that led to a revival of Mordecai ham, that Billy Graham came to faith. Now here's the deal. I have no doubt, unless there are things that we don't have a clue about, that Billy Graham's going to have some rewards in heaven. Amen. But you know who's going to be standing right beside him, I'm convinced. Mr. Kimball. When you get to heaven, it's going to be a reevaluation of what's important in life. And then here's the last thing. It's also going to be a place of regret. In First Corinthians three fifteen it makes the response that those of us will get there and we'll see opportunities we missed and things we could have done and we will realize that there were opportunities for our lives to make a greater difference in the kingdom of God. Again, I I don't think this is going to be everlasting regret, but some temporary regret about what we didn't do. Will Christians face judgment? Yes. That the judgment seat of Christ will be a place of review and reward and reevaluation and regret. So what do we do about that? Two things and then we're done. Our first response is that we make sure our name is written in the book of life. If you're here today and you don't know whether you're saved or not, the most important decision you will ever make is to give your life to Jesus Christ. So allow him to save you. He has already died for your sins. He is calling to you and asking if you will accept the forgiveness of your sins. You cannot do it on your own. You cannot save yourself. And so today, if you're here and you have never accepted Jesus Christ as your savior, then today is the day. And the second thing we do is that we live with compassionate conviction compelled by Christ's love and confident in His commission. Now all those C's come and we don't have time today to go into it. All of that comes from what Paul says based on this. Verse 11, after he says that we're going to stand before it, he says, Therefore, since we know the fear of the Lord, since we know this is happening, we are going to try to persuade people. Therefore, because we know that we're all going to stand before a judgment seat, and for those whose names aren't written in the book of life, they will be people that will spend eternity in hell. And therefore, because we know that we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, even those of us that are believers, and that we can invest in, as it says in Scripture, we can store up treasures in heaven. I want to preach the gospel to people to let them know, if you're not saved, get saved. Come to Jesus. Be saved. If you are, live your life in a way that stores up treasures in heaven doesn't focus on the minutiae and the things of this earth, but focuses on the things and the people and the purpose of God. So that when you stand in that moment at the behemoth seat and are judged by our Father in heaven, the Trinity comes that the rewards that are lavished upon you are rewards that are Great. And mighty because of what you did with the gifts that God gave to you. Paul goes on to talk through there. And again, we don't have time to go through that. Go read the rest of this chapter. But at the end of that is where he comes to the thing and he says, and we know Christ is pleading for people. Christ is calling people. And so we are his ambassadors as if Christ were making his plea through us. How is God using you to bring people to Jesus? And how is your life being used for the building up of the kingdom of God? Let's pray together. Dear Jesus, we pray in this moment that you would move on earth as it is in heaven in your will. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.